Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Do I Dare to Eat a Peach edition. It's Wednesday, November 29th, 2017. On today's show, Call Me By Your Name is the new film by director Luca Guadagnino. It is ravishing critics and audiences alike. We cannot wait to discuss ourselves. And then 30 years ago, She's Gotta Have It was a breakthrough film for Spike Lee. It broke him, and it broke through black cinema in America. It's now on Netflix as a reboot. We're joined by Slate's own Aisha Harris to discuss... And finally, an urban legend about a mysterious, unmarked 1980s video game is explored in the podcast series The Polybius Conspiracy. But is it, too, something of a lark we will discuss with Slate's own Jacob Brogan? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Uh, Lark is generous. Hello. (laughs) Really? Oh, my. All right. Well, there's a commentary begins now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, and um, can we get through the intros before you start editorializing? <laughs> Fine. And of course, Slate's film critic is Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey there, Steven. All right. Why don't we just dig right in? Call Me By Your Name is directed by Luca Guadagnino and written by James Ivory. He of Merchant Ivory fame. It's adapted from the 2007 novel by Andre Asiman. Here a disclosure. I know um, Andre Asiman and a producer of the film, Peter Spears. Uh, So you may take what I say with a grain of salt. I will also say I saw the film seated next to my gay 14-year-old daughter. We were both transfixed, and I regard the film as a masterpiece. But moving on, um, it tells the story of a summer romance between a precocious 17-year-old boy and his father's live-in research assistant after the two are thrown together in the host family's Italian villa. Elio Perlman, as played by Timothée Chalamet, is a singular creation, a 17-year-old prodigy who is believable, a rare thing, I would say. Um, He's omnisciently read, gifted musically, at home in any one of several languages. He is beautiful, sly, perhaps a little cruel, 
and he first regards Oliver, played by Army Hammer, jealously as a usurper and perhaps even a fraud, and tests him and often bests him. But his contempt for the American boob hides something else, and the film turns into a love story every bit as strange, tender, layered, and complex as Elio himself. Let's listen to a clip. So World War II, huh? Oh, uh, no, this is World War I. Oh. You have to be at least 80 years old to have known any of them. Oh. I never even heard of the Battle of Piave. Battle of Piave was one of the most lethal battles in World War I. 170,000 people die. Is there anything you don't know? I know nothing, Oliver. Well, you seem to know more than anybody else around here. Well, if you only knew how little I know about the things that matter. What things that matter? You know what things. Why are you telling me this? Because I thought you should know. Dana, that scene, um, it is almost, it's beautiful in itself, but it's hard a little bit to understand in isolation. It comes after many, many minutes of building tension amidst uh, a wonderfully played ambiguity between these two leads. And it's we're just in that scene that you just heard on the cusp of... Um, the relationship between these two young men happening. Um, what a remarkable scene from from really a remarkable film. Yeah, it's funny that that ended up being our clip because that is something of, it doesn't sound like it, heard out of context, but it's something of an emotional spoiler because that really is the moment of confession between Elio and Oliver, the two leads, the romantic leads of this movie. And also that clip, hearing it in audio, is an illustration of why cinema is cinema and it has to be cinema because the way that shot is staged the two of them are are looking at this World War One monument that they're talking about, and uh, and the camera follows them in such a way that the the monument comes between them, and you can see the back of one of their faces and nothing at all of the other. But you know that the two of them can see each other. So the way the whole thing is blocked in this long take is just uh, that is such a, a triumphant shot for me. It almost doesn't need conversation for you to know that that's the confession that's that's happening between them. It's it's yes. beautiful. Well, I mean, as you can tell from my raving about that shot, I I'm, I also love this movie. I'm a little bit afraid this segment will just be a swoon fest. Maybe Julia can throw some some vinegar on us or something. But this is just the kind of movie, I say this in my review, that you kind of move into and just live in for two hours because it takes place in such beautiful surroundings and with such beautiful people. And, uh, and so it is a little bit hard to be objective about this movie, especially seeing it at the beginning of a bleak winter. It just feels so much like summertime. It's just this beautiful summer romance. I don't know. Julia, tell us, do say something negative. <laughs> I'm not. I won't. I shan't. You can't make me. Um, no, I, I really loved this movie. It's sumptuous. You sort of move into it. One thing I was curious to talk to you guys about is uh, the portrayal of the gay romance in it, which it's clear at moments that they exist in a world where gay love and gay romance are not uh, proclaimed on the piazzas of Northern Italy, particularly. Uh, and yet their attraction and love is largely met with um, support from the people around them. It's a different environment than something like Brokeback Mountain. And I almost began to wonder by the end of the film whether that the sort of fan fantasy of the place, this villa, this beautiful old villa with clanging shutters and uh, 
gorgeous peach trees was supposed to be slightly surreal in that way. I'm I'm struggling to articulate myself, but I'm I, curious. I thought it was made pretty clear that they had to keep it on the DL. I mean, even that scene mm-hmm. that we heard the clip from, the reason that they're mumbling across this statue in a piazza is because they can't just stroll hand in hand talking about it. Yeah, I agree with Dana on this. I mean, I, I this is the way I this is the way I looked at it is that this was very purposely not a movie about intolerance and it didn't want to set off the gay romance against you know the gay experience and um and i think that that was a, a choice that 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 in a way it was going to be slightly fantastical and dreamy um you know as julia says kind of pointed up by the uh you know sort of overwhelming beauty of the italian villa and countryside um as a way of just making it about the experience of principally this boy in a way um and i thought the 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 movie to contrast it to was less brokeback mountain and maybe more moonlight i mean in some superficial way this film is going to be this year's moonlight it's a gay romance that an indie film about a gay romance that is probably going to a blow up fairly big um, because it's beautifully done. But in Moonlight, Moonlight's really a story of the ultimate intolerance towards um, gay men, a community that can't possibly sacrifice notions of masculinity to same-sex attract to the reality of same-sex attraction. And the struggle in that movie is about that young man making himself into a hardened and kind of hyper-masculine person and burying his homosexuality within it and in some ways this movie is the opposite of that it's 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 it offers a kind of beautiful contrast to 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 moonlight because you know with intolerance tabled it really becomes about the um erotic life of elio and the inner life of elio and at that age those two things are sort of the same your erotic life is your inner life (laughs) when you're 17 and everything is a sexual a projection um, or or enters your consciousness in a highly sexualized way and setting aside uh, in that respect even the fact that this is a you know obviously a same sex um, you know romance I, I think it caught that be- beautifully that that tenderness and that moment uh, of being on the verge of being a sexual adult but not yet one and the fluidity of it too it's it the ways in which he he switches so fluidly between languages. He speaks Italian, he speaks French, he speaks English uh, to his parents and his parents' friends, um, but also the fluidity of the sexuality. I mean, he's moving back and forth between homoerotic and uh, um, and heteroerotic attraction. Um, uh, um, and I, I thought all of that was just handled with the kind of uh, lyrical perfection Um and the funny thing was, I will say one other thing, which is that five minutes into the movie, I was shocked to discover I thought I wasn't going to like it because a peeve of mine are movies that appear high cultured in a somewhat superficial way because they drop a ton of names. There are hyper learned people in them about, you know, about whom we're supposed to feel a combination of envy and kind of uh, intimidation or something. And it not only moves past that, it uses that so beautifully and so believably. I mean, in part because the people who created this movie speak that language themselves uh, quite naturally. But it, the the movie the movie is about a young know it all from a family of of pleasant know it alls who's discovering what he doesn't know, right? Which is kind of the essence of that scene with with Hammer. Um, and I think they've just made a remarkable movie. I mean, again, I know people behind the making of the movie so 
our listeners are free to discount what I say. But for days after I saw it, I was in a trance. And I kept thinking, you know, I can't not apply the M word to it. I really think this movie is a, is a masterpiece. All right, before we move on to um, one at least baby elephant in the room, which is the issue of consent, which has become topical, and I think we have to address it vis-a-vis this film, I want to say two quick things without spoiling anything, I hope. First of all, it is a huge part and a very important part of this movie and the emotional power of this movie the, 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 for the bulk of the movie, unanswered question of what his parents know and what precisely they would approve of. Um, I think the movie's structured around the viewer not really knowing and Elio not really knowing whether or not he will be in trouble, A, for sleeping with the research assistant and B, um, for having a gay romance. And then the second thing is, and, and Dana, I think you'll back me up on this without giving anything away, that has to be one of the most moving final shots of of really any film I've ever seen. Yeah, it is one of those movies where the ending is, is, is what haunts you. And when you said it stayed with you for days afterwards, it was actually the very last shot that I thought about for days afterwards, which is a testament both to Guadagnino's choice to, to make that shot, which we won't spoil, and uh, and the acting of Timothée Chalamet, who in a sea of great performances, I think, steals the movie. I mean, he's really, really incredible. Yeah, it is a question whether we Earthlings will be able to grab his ankle and keep him in terrestrial orbit before he flies off to some other planet where people are even cooler and more interesting and more talented than the best movie stars. Because that's, he is just, he's going off into some new, I, I mean, his performance in this film is just um, astonishing. But did the consent question bother you guys, especially in the current? I mean, I had some people sort of attack me on Twitter for my very positive review of this movie saying, how can you, how can you stand up for this movie when it's about a teenager being seduced. And one of the points that I made to them, and I think I make in the review as well, is that in the country where it's taking place, he actually is of the age of consent. It's 14 in Italy. Mm. I, I mean, this movie, I, I, this is what I keep trying to get at inarticulately. This movie is so incredibly careful to frame this as extremely consensual and initiated by the 17-year-old and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and slowly unfolding, right, with lots and lots of stops and starts and hesitation on both parts. Yeah, and it, it almost, almost to a fault, the movie. I the movie seems aware of the potential concern there and extremely conscious, like almost seeing the seams, noticeably conscious of making sure that Army Hammer is constantly checking whether everything's okay and really resists and. Uh, the Elio character really has to try to initiate things eight or ten times before anything really happens and uh, Oliver succumbs. And I actually don't think it's a mystery at all what the parents think of it. It may be a mystery a little bit to, to Elio, but it's extremely clear to the viewer from about 45 minutes through the film that the parents have a sense that Elio may be attracted to Oliver and that they're fine with it. Like I, I did not, I did not think there was any mystery there at all. Dana, like, do you agree with that? I don't know. I mean, I guess I was sort of waiting for the moment, just because it tends to happen in teen sex movies that they got discovered by someone who disapproved. And I, I sort of like that the movie didn't didn't go there and didn't go down that road. There's also a suggestion, I think, in a couple of scenes that the father, wonderfully played by Michael Stuhlbarg has a homoerotic side as well that he's repressed yeah. and that and that in some ways, although he seems to love his wife, that in some ways he also lusts after Army Hammer as who wouldn't. We finally produced the controversy in this segment. Julia thinks the parents know. I think they don't. I think that's what's so powerful about it is that figuring out what love and sex are is 
thrilling and scary separate from the question of whether your sexuality is accepted by the society that you're a part of. And this movie hinges on both of those uncertainties, the sort of uncertainty of what being a grown-up sexual being is and then his uncertainty about his sexuality, I think, even in the context of an incredibly accepting and unusual and progressive family. And that makes it unusual and really powerful, I think. And I think that that last shot that we're talking about is something that anyone who's who's loved and suffered for love will will be weeping at whether or not you know you've you've lived this kind of potentially taboo breaking romance. Okay, um, call me by your name is in staggered release. It'll come to you eventually. You should find it as soon as you can. We are three thumbs up to the sky. If I uh, read the panel correctly. I thought it was a wonderful movie. Please go see it. Call me by your name. Okay. I'm on. one ancient statuary thumb slowly ascending from a northern <laughs> Italian lake, actually. <laughs> That's how I've always thought of you, Julia. <laughs> well, I'm a thumb embedded in a peach. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, we all know where my thumb's been for years now. All right, uh, moving on. <laughs> All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we take care of some business. Julia, I'm sure we have some of that. We do indeed. I want to tell our listeners about a new Slate show. It's If Then, a podcast about technology, society, and power. And it is so good, you guys. Each week, Slate's April Glazer and Will Aremis take you on a lively tour of the tech news that actually matters, from fake news in your Facebook feed to the algorithms that want your job to the Uber drivers who want benefits. With news-making interviews of key tech industry figures, fascinating academics, and top tech journalists, they explore how the technology that's shaping our world works and the ideas, ideologies, incentives, and biases that underlie it. Uh, my favorite thing about it is that Will and April are two incredibly smart and vivacious analysts of this industry. They both know a ton and they often don't agree. So you get their fascinating perspectives and you always learn more about every topic as they debate subjects back and forth. Uh, they are also they do a really great job with these joint interviews, which is actually kind of a tricky format to pull off. But um, they've had really provocative and illuminating conversations with their guests. So please check out If Then wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, also, we are going to be doing our yearly call-in show soon. If you have questions you want to ask us, leave a message at 929-266-4914. Again, that's 929-266-4914. You can ask Dana what three languages would be spoken at her fantasy North Italian villa. You can ask Steve exactly which North Italian Alps he'd like to frolic in. I'm a, fr I'm a French Alp guy. Thank you. <sighs> Uh, not I, not me, not after this movie. I guess I was never a French help guy. Anyway, ask us questions inspired or not inspired by Call Me By Your Name, uh, and we will strive to answer them in a spirit of jollity and year-end cheer. Uh, again, 929-266-4914. In Slate Plus today, we are joined by the effervescent June Thomas to talk about the engagement of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it's a great way to support Slate and the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to it. All right. Well, here's what I associate with the original She's Gotta Have It. The first is that uh, 
uh, it was being black and white. It was short. It was under 90 minutes. It was very sweet. It was very funny. It was a revelation. It showed black life uh, as depicted by a black writer and director without white characters, much less a white savior figure. The question, I think, is uh, is that she's got to have it reboot now on Netflix any one of those things. Uh, to discuss that, we have with us Aisha Harris, a Slate contributor. Hey, Aisha, welcome back to the show. Hi. Uh, before we go any further, why don't we listen to a clip from this uh, reboot, and then we'll dig in and discuss. You're a sex addict, aren't you? Wow. You are on some other light-skinned, green-eyed, blonde hair, pretty boy bullshit today. <laughs> he thinks you are a sex addict. Okay, so if I'm a sex addict, what does that make you? I'm Greer Childs. I'm a grown-ass man. And I'm a grown-ass woman. I can't enjoy sex. If I'm such an addict, why don't you leave me the hell alone? Well, now you're getting defensive. No, 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 no. I'm not getting defensive. If I'm an addict, then I should quit cold turkey, right? You, a numero uno on my list. Shower. Fuck you very much. All right. Well, of course, the voice we're hearing there is the character Nola Darling, who is uh, featured in the original film, who refuses to choose between multiple suitors. Uh, she's an artist and a free spirit in uh, Fort Green. Aisha, I'm very curious to know what the original movie uh, uh, meant to you and, and what do you think of the new uh, new version of it? Well, I had not seen the original f- f- uh, probably about in about a decade maybe more, not since maybe late high school, college. So I didn't really remember it, although I've gone back to it a few times. And I recalled the very uncomfortable rape scene that uh, Spike has since atoned for, both in, in public. And I think this whole show is sort of an atonement for that uncomfortable rape scene that happens towards the end between Nola Darling and uh, Jamie Overstreet, one of her lovers. And Jamie is like the more straight-laced, uh, very conventional, I want a wife and kids uh, sort of man. Um, so I, for an experiment of my, for my own experiment, I decided to rewatch the original right before diving into the uh, new version. And I really, really disliked it. Huh, how come? <laughs> the original version. Mm. Um, I think just because of the politics, like the politics felt so icky and I don't think it holds up. I don't think the politics hold up well. I feel like for the context of the time that it was made, I can totally understand why it was considered fresh and 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 so different. And as you mentioned, Steve, at the top, like the fact that there are no white characters, it's not, this isn't about a movie about race. It's It's about, I mean, it's about black people, but like white people are not lording over it in that way. But um, just watching it again, I was like, first of all, the acting is terrible. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's truly terrible. Tracy Camilla Johns, God bless her. She just is not comfortable on screen. And and I and you know what? I I, I don't hold all these things against him per se because this is his first feature film, and for a first feature film, I think it's really strong. But when you hold it up against his later work and just the politics now that exists. And even then, I feel like the politics were already kind of screwy. Um, and Well, the movie itself kind of believes that she's a freak, right? As all the, the guys keep calling her. They, right. There's there's a kind of a both a fetishization and a contempt for her sex drive. Yeah, but then at the end, the way it ends, it does sort of reassert her. Like it, she she says, like, my body, my mind. I'm, I decided to, you know, not try. I was going to try monogamy. I've decided against it. 
Um, and so in a way it thinks, I think at the end, Spike Lee thinks that he's empowering, he's, he's written a very empowering female character, but he hasn't because it's really more about what these men think about Nola Darling than like what she's figuring out about herself, which is why I really liked and and maybe this is partially because I had just watched the original, but this is, maybe it's why I really liked the new version because I feel like um, we we do get a sense of who Nola Darling is, and and she's you know I think it's a product of the time. It's 2017. Like you can't write a character like Nola Darling like he wrote before now, and we see her actually working. Like it's about her career. Like we learn a little bit in the movie that she's like an artist, but that's it. Like we never we. I think we see her painting maybe once or doing something once, but like it's really just about her romantic entanglements, whereas this is about her wrestling with her romantic entanglements and how they are interfering with her career. And I just really appreciated that. And the acting is way better. Um, we should yeah. we should shout out to Wanda Wise, who plays Nola Darling, who to me was the only thing that made the series at all work, as we'll get to. I did not like it near <laughs> as much as you, but I do think she's she's great in the main role. Yeah, I think I might fall somewhere between the two of you, and I'm curious to hear what everybody else thought, but I... You know, for all that we lament the um, resuscitation of old IP on this show and why does everything have to be a remake or a reboot or a revisitation or turning a game into a movie? Like, you know, why can't anybody just like write a story and tell a story? This does strike me as one of the better reasons, you know, oh, a really fascinating uh, expert, master, creator returning to subject matter they attempted earlier in their career with, you know, less experience and fewer resources and, uh, you know, fewer decades of political understanding under their belt and seeing what happens when they tackle it again with with more dexterity. Um, Like that was that's interesting that that kind of process of revisiting an old work. I really enjoyed that and, and have enjoyed reading the interviews with Spike Lee where he kind of talks about the things he loves about the original and the things he got wrong and what, what he's doing here. Um, I, I, you know, the one thing that I was thinking about a bunch this week in part because of call me by your name is sort of like, what can movies do and what do TV shows do well? And call me by your name does strike me as this one, a thing that needs to be a movie. It makes sense for it to be a movie. It's about this episode. It's about this slow build. It's about, kind of tension ratcheting 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 um the the sort of mannered pieces of the style here where people are kind of talking direct to camera and there's moments where text comes on screen where shots of albums come on screen for me did not work as well in the context of a tv show i think i might grow accustomed to them over time and like them but they i sort of felt it felt a little fussy to me in a medium where i'm kind of more used to just get directly getting to know the characters and follow them along. Um, uh, that was an initial response. I'm not sure it's one that I would even mark as a critique because I think it might just be me getting used to a slightly different way of doing things. But I felt unfamiliar to see that kind of stylistic flourish, which is so fun and makes you feel like you're in capable, confident hands sitting in a darkened theater. In my living room, I was mm-hmm. kind of like, Ugh, 
get over yourself and just tell yeah. the story. I completely agree. I mean, it's 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 rare, and especially with, given that Spike Lee is the directorial hand behind this, if not the writer of most of the episodes. In fact, most of the episodes are written by women, which is interesting given that he is kind of trying to atone for the original. She's got to have it. But I found specifically the direction, cloying, cute, overly fussy is a good word for it, that every minute there had to be a hashtag appearing or somebody's text floating by on the screen or, like you say, a shot of the album cover of whatever music was playing in the last scene. And it just started to to really interrupt the flow of the story to me. Yeah, it's very invasive. I mean, and it points up the difference between an auteur and a showrunner, right? Like, so... You know, the auteur is the is the film director who, in the space of a very contained medium, right, like like hour and a half to two hours, ideal length for a film, you know, exerts an enormous amount of control over the industrial and creative process in order to tell that story, you know, extremely well. And their signature can be put upon everything that happens in those two hours. A showrunner, a, show, a showrunner is kind of more like a boss, you know, uh, presiding over a writer's room, uh, you know, with a creative idea and imposing a degree of continuity, but within which all of these creative talents have to be sort of left to their own authorial de- de- devices. Like actors have to kind of, for a TV show to work over three to seven seasons or so, I mean, actors have to begin to blend with their characters and really create and inhabit those characters. You know, the the writing team has to be... Um, you know, uh, given a degree of autonomy away from the original, ver- you know, vi- vision of the of the of the show's creator, in order for the thing to take on a life of its own, right? And it's like in that first episode, at least, Spike Lee is not giving everyone else the freedom to sort of be who they are. You hear him in the in the writing of the dialogue, and you really feel him in the framing. The hashtagging is very gimmicky. Uh, and intrusive, and I found there were moments when it started to breathe and and take on that kind of life of its own beyond him. And I thought this could be a you know a wonderful television show, but I didn't see evidence that that was going to be its characteristic feature as it went on. I mean, he's spoken in a bunch of interviews. I don't think he actually wrote very many of the. He wrote the first and the last episode. Yeah, and he directed all oh, okay. the episodes. Yeah, so I think it's more the direction. I did find. I liked the second episode better than the first. I mean, I think like uh, I actually think that if how much of it have you watched, Asia? I finished it. Yeah. yeah. So I'm curious for you. What d- does the style kind of evolve over time? Or how, <laughs> how does it? No. Uh. N- well, no. It doesn't. It doesn't. I will say. I think in the in the penultimate episode, uh, there's a moment with her therapist. I really like the scenes, even though when you get scenes with therapists, there's always that chance that you're just like diagnosing the show and and it can get very didactic and and that's what spike lee does like if you don't like spike lee movies you're not going to like the show that's just what it is um but there's a moment with her therapist in the in the penultimate episode that i think it the way it was shot i found really fascinating and it, it was a moment it was a very long scene in which there was a lot of back and forth going going on and the face her Dewanda Wise's face is just like so expressive and emotive mm-hmm. that like I loved those moments. Um, and there's a giant. It ends on a giant uh, music, like with a musical number uh, to Prince. That's not. I don't think that's a spoiler at all. <laughs> no, that's just an enticement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, again, I, I I think that I I can understand why people would find it intrusive. I even found it intrusive at times, and you know, some of the dialogue can be very clunky like the first episode um 
she she talks she says something and she's like yeah i used my training at pratt institute blah 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 and <laughs> my boyfriend he, he watched he was watched it as well and he was like no one says pratt institute they just say pratt like it's like <laughs> there's these little things and there's like a moment where she says black lives matter and it feels very out of place because it's just like her talking to the camera but talking about herself, like it's the dialogue can be very clunky, especially I think in the in the heterosexual love scenes. It's like it's so clear that the scenes between the women are better written and I think better acted than the ones between men and women. And yeah. it makes me glad that this series, unlike the movie, is not all about these three men that she's juggling, that there's also a lot of female friendship because it's so much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the lesbian uh, character Opal, who was Ooh, in the original, yeah, yeah. I mean, she in the original is very predatory, and there's this whole like it's the uh, it, it's a very <laughs> poor depiction of a queer female character. Like she's a predator, essentially. That's how she's depicted. And here, I think her relationship with with Opal, and and in the movie also, she's uh, Tracy Camilla Johnson's character, Nola Darling. She is not like she doesn't swing that way or she's she's not bi she doesn't consider herself pansexual which i think this this character does um so uh, here she's actually you know goes with a opal for a bit and they have a relationship to some extent and that it's like the most layered i think relationship that we see on screen which may or may not be a coincidence i don't know i just all three of the men were so annoying i mean i had some affection for the anthony ramos character just because he's playing the very endearing character mars Mars. that that spike lee plays in the original and because it's anthony ramos who we all saw in hamilton and loved but all three of the men are so irritating why would she want and to spend one minute with any of them i I don't get it either (laughs) yeah i mean aisha i'm curious to hear you uh put this show in the context of a very happy trend on television vision of uh, comedies starring black women and about the lives of black women created, maybe not this one, but in some cases created by black women. Um, you know, you've interviewed some of the creators and stars on Represent. I imagine you'll get to some of these guys at some point or that I assume they're on your wish list. Yeah. Um, but sort of how, how would you situate this show alongside Insecure and some of the other shows like it that have emerged in the past couple of years that you know, like the original, she's got to have it and still rare in the world of any produced media. Just, you know, they're not about the black experience from the perspective of teaching white people to understand the black experience in the manner of the help. They're just like full of different black experiences. Right. I mean, I'm glad the show exists and it's a different kind of black woman we're seeing because I, if you look at something like Insecure, you know, this last season, Issa's character was trying to have her hoe phase and was failing spectacularly at it and we see a woman here who she's like i'm she's she's not pulling it off in the way that she thinks she is but she's also i feel like she has uh to some extent more self-confidence than than isa isa does so i appreciate that that exists um at the same time, there, there's a quote, there's a really good Spike Lee profile in the New York Times from earlier this over the weekend. Um, and there's a quote from Samuel L. Jackson, who's a frequent collaborator of Spike Lee's, where he says, like, you know, everyone has three lovers now. Like, there's, this is not like, you know, <laughs> it's not that um, taboo, which uh, yes and no. I mean, yes, it's it's way more accepted. But at the same time, I think that what this show is trying to explore is the idea of in the same way that Insecure was trying to explore it, like this idea of a black woman being quote unquote promiscuous and, and trying to live freely uh, in the ways that other women sometimes are afforded more 
um, and without being called a hoe or a freak. And I found it interesting. Uh, but again, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. And I think that, uh, if, if I, if, like, if you held a gun to my head and said, which show must you watch? Like, you can't watch both. You have to choose. Like, I'd obviously go with Insecure. Um, oh my God. Insecure. <laughs> I, I, I can't wait to watch Insecure, whereas I couldn't wait to turn this one off. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so anti. I really wanted no. to like it. And yeah. I really did like that main character. But I just feel like, ugh. I mean, it, it, why is he returning to this after, after 30 years? I feel like, there's not enough that's different. It hasn't evolved enough for it to deserve to be blown out into a 10-episode series. And hasn't evolved as much as the world has in those 30 years. I mean, that was the feeling that I was left with over and over again. The show She's Gotta Have It, it's on Netflix. Check it out. Come tell us what you thought about it. But Aisha, as always, a pleasure. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Polybius Conspiracy is a podcast from Radiotopia. It's uh, kind of in the serial or S-Town documentary style. Uh, in this one, a couple of NPRs reporters try to track down the truth behind an urban legend about a 1980s video game called Polybius or Polybius, an unmarked cabinet that showed up in a Portland arcade one day and began queering the inner life of uh, people who played it. And in fact, may have resulted in the alien kidnapping of one of its star players. Uh, we will be joined in a moment by Jacob Brogan, who wrote about uh, Polybius. But first, let's listen to a clip. Even if you're not already familiar with the Polybius urban legend, it's something you may have noticed referenced on episodes of The Simpsons and The Goldbergs, in the pages of Batman Incorporated Number 1, or in a recent Nine Inch Nails music video for their song Less Than. Best-selling author Ernest Cline used Polybius as a plot point in his latest novel, Armada. The premise is that from 1977 on, Star Wars and Space Invaders and kind of everything that followed uh, was not an accident. That that movie was partially funded by the government to kind of help prepare everybody's hearts and minds for uh, an alien invasion. Uh, and that video games and the whole video game industry was kind of shaped and repurposed to train the people of Earth to control drones using their video game consoles to fight off this alien invasion. In Armada, I took it a step further. Like, Polybius was just kind of the first of a series of games, and then I create a fictional sequel to Polybius called Phaeton. But before it became a sort of pop culture Easter egg, it was just a whisper circulating on arcade floors and the Internet. All right. Well, we're joined by Slate's own Jacob Brogan, tech and culture writer. Jacob, welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Um, so Polybius, as I understand it, is kind of in one sense a typical urban legend in that it was confected out of things that had their basis in fact. So, in, you know, in fact, arcades back in the 70s and 80s would be raided by federal agents. Uh, they were looking for drugs or fenced goods or teenage uh, prostitutes and their johns. Uh, there were video games that did make kids feel sick. Um, there were unmarked games being beta tested uh, by video companies. And this all bundled together and created this kind of fascinating urban legend. And now there's this podcast. So why don't we begin by talking a little bit about the urban legend and its genesis, and then what you discovered about the podcast. Right. So the story as told in in the Polybius Conspiracy, in this podcast, is that there's this guy, Bobby Feldstein, who claims that he played this this game, Polybius, when it first appeared in Portland in 1981. And he got so good at it that he kind of lost himself in it. And then one day he starts having what, what sounded a little like the sort of – it's like the aura of a seizure, this this moment where reality starts to come unglued. And he makes his way home and he feels that his house isn't his own. He, he actually – 
uh, in the podcast, Feldstein, as they're interviewing, says that it's like the Freudian uncanny, uh, presumably with an eye toward toward the the Freudian, uh, the German word there, unheimlich, uh, unhomely. Uh, and then he kind of blacks out and these these strange people come for him and they enter his house and he, he really blacks out and he wakes up in this cave in the woods and he gets – uh, rescued by this this mauled boy, escapes. And this is the story that he's been telling for years and no one has believed him. And now supposedly he leads walking tours of Portland trying to convince people not only that Polybius, this urban legend about these arcade games was real, but also that his own experiences that no one has ever believed are real. Uh, and the podcast, the Polybius Conspiracy podcast from the start sets out to investigate his claims and it approaches them at first kind of dubiously. Uh, the the producers of the show um, are skeptical, but uh, evidence as the episodes continue of the seven-episode limited series, evidence starts to accumulate that maybe, in fact, there's some kind of truth to Bobby's story. Uh, mm. And at first, it's quite tantalizing, I think. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that most people um, who wrote about this in uh, various publications about the Polybius conspiracy didn't pick up on something that you picked up on and pursued. So talk a little bit about that. So I was, I'd was i been texting with the producer of, of your show, uh, as, as well as my podcast uh, working, uh, Benjamin Frisch, about this show. And I was kind of listening to it. And at first, I was, I was kind of buying it. it. It felt real. There were definitely real people providing expert commentary. And then uh, as a, someone who'd grown up in Oregon, I started noticing weird things because it, it takes place mostly in Portland. What I finally did is I just wrote to the producer, the executive producer, Julie Shapiro of the show and said effectively, hey, I don't mean to be rude, but you know, is your show real? And what she told me, uh, what no one apparently had asked her before was that no, in fact, this show was not entirely real that that there were elements of reality that they had they had gotten commentary from real people real experts but that many of the characters including Bobby Feldstein uh the supposed abductee were were in fact fictional people they were actors i i'm so flummoxed by this because i listened i listened to all seven episodes for reasons i can't completely explain what is what was the point of making an elaborate seven episode audio "Quote unquote documentary that's in fact a mockumentary of the style of audio documentary of discovery and inquiry that has become very popular." Did the producer of the show give you any of the why of like what the what the conceit of this project was? Was it just to make some good listening? So Julie Shapiro suggested that that they thought it would cheapen the effect if they had uh, if they had told us from the start that it was a work of fiction. I'm, I'm not sure that it would have. Um, you know, I at no point did I think. The X Files was real when I was watching that in the '90s uh, as a young person, but I I did enjoy it all the same. Um, here, Todd Luoto, one of the one of the guys who actually made the show, um, Luoto told me in an email that he imagined it as a sort of digital campfire, and that they were uh, freely building on the stories that that, that were already out there. And, and they further, after my own article about this came out, and they kind of had to own up more publicly to the fact that it, it was not, in fact, a, a real documentary that they were producing. Uh, they've suggested in, in, in this commentary that they wanted it to be um, a meditation on urban legends themselves and the way they spread 
uh, on the way we experience them. And, and frankly, I'm just not really convinced by that. I, I mean, I found a lot of the show compelling, especially in the first few episodes before it starts to go off the rails a little bit. But I, I, I'm just not sold that this is the right way to meditate on an urban legend if that's what they were really trying to accomplish. I mean, can I intervene with an intenser version of that sentiment? I listened to only part of this, so I don't know how many cards they lay on the table later, and I would like those of you who've heard it all to tell me. But I also listened to it, Jacob, having already read your kind of expose and also having read some some coverage in major outlets where people didn't realize the thing that you discovered and reviewed it as if it were a real investigation of a hoax, when in fact the podcast itself is a hoax. And that fills me with rage. I mean, I think especially in this moment when fake news is essentially ruining the world and putting us all at risk, that to... To pre- even even when you listen to that clip, to sort of present everything in that plinky plunky radiotopia, let's investigate <laughs> style. When you're actually lying and hiring an actor to pretend to be this Bobby Feldstein abductee, and it's about a teenager being abducted, and there's also a story of another teenager who might have been murdered. I mean, there's these really dark things that are being just made up and let out into the world, where obviously they can turn into whatever kind of urban legend they want. And I listened to the few episodes that I listened to in a state of rage. Okay, so so we all recently talked about a mockumentary that we loved and thought was great, right? American Vandal, Who Drew right. the Dicks. It never <laughs> quite says this is a fake documentary, like bling bling bling. Like there's not, you know, it's it's um, it's clear throughout. It's signaled clearly throughout what it is by the fact that it would be impossible for a high school documentary to look this good and be appearing on Netflix and the wit of the titles and the ludicrosity of the underlying mystery and the whole thing. It's it's clear what it is from the moment you start watching it. But they don't actually like have a producer come on and be like, just so you know, there is no Dylan and nobody answer to who drew the dicks is nobody. Nobody drew the dicks except for the people in our prop department trying to make this mockumentary show that's not real. Like, I, I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, why isn't it okay for people in this new audio space to play with form in this way? What is it that – like I, I think where I come down is that this thing is a complete and utter rage-inducing failure. But <laughs> not every audio fiction or mockumentary audio fiction or um, effort to play with form mm-hmm. would be. So I think uh, – I think part of what makes this so frustrating, if it is frustrating, is is that blending of fact and fiction. A lot of the audio that they use here, especially from the experts, sort of local Portland historians and th- you know things like this that they draw in, they recorded before they set out to make this uh, audio version of the Polybius Conspiracy. So did they, those people think they were doing like real interviews for, for journalism? So some of them did not. There's at least one of the, the sort of pseudo experts who – uh, I emailed with a little and who was in on it. Uh, but but Frechette and Luoto were a little dodgy with me, a little evasive about whether they had informed uh, other participants. That's fucking uh, bullshit. I, I agree. <laughs> Sorry. I agree. And and but, but I think that's also what divides it from something like American Vandal. And on American Vandal, you don't have, uh, you know, any actual scholars no. of high school come on and say, you know, well, this is how things work in a high school or, or whatever. Uh, here you have something like that. And it gives it the force of truth, as does the skepticism that mm-hmm. they, they bear. In my article, I suggest that it uh, inoculates us to some extent against our own skepticism about whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, they, yeah. 
And that remains the case. For those of you who heard the whole thing, that remains the case throughout all seven episodes. There's not a moment. They never tip the veil, the final line. Spoiler, but it's spoiled already by being rotten to the core. Um, (laughs) See, I'm going to tear up. (laughs) I think the final line is like a tape of the guy and they've chased him into the woods, possibly to the original point. And then he's left his phone and you hear a recording where he says something to the effect of like, or something. <laughs> it's like, no, it didn't, you jerk. But wait, Steve, I feel like we've been t- talking over No, no, no. It, it, it's all right. I, I, I mean, I just was going to wonder out loud whether um, had Hillary Clinton won the election, whether we would be enraged or just disappointed or bored. Um, you know, I mean, obviously the, the timing is really bad for a clever POMO hybrid like this, like a post-truthy um, uh, hybrid. Um, but I'll tell you what my problem was with it is that First of all, I immediately knew the guy was an actor, the one person who was an actor. Um, you know, the supposed I, abductee, Bobby Feldstein. Yes, even though I hadn't really, I hadn't done the reading yet. Um, and and wh- I had the strangest reaction, which is I absolutely loved the podcast, the nonfiction podcast about an urban legend uh, about this mysterious phantom arcade game and the genesis of the urban legend. And I was completely bored stiff by the fictional <laughs> podcast about an alien abduction, which, you know, I mean, truthfully, Stranger Things is doing 1970s, you know, uh, uh, you know, Spielberg nostalgia so much better and so much more completely. And I did not feel as though this was a fresh take on it. Um, you know, I just think it's interesting that, you, on the, you know, on the one hand, you've got like the mockumentary of Spinal Tap, which clearly doesn't need Rob Reiner to look at the camera and say, I, the actor Rob Reiner, you know, <laughs> and now assert that what, you, what follows is... Uh, um, not real, right? And War of the Worlds, which got people back in the 1930s, I'm guessing, to go out with shotguns looking for the actual aliens uh, landing. Had Hillary Clinton won, maybe there would be this kind of retrospective respect for what Orson Welles was able to do in duping his audience and kind of no harm, no foul. But, you know, I just think that given given the force of post-truth in a potentially totalitarian world, you know, maybe that's a road you don't want to go down. The one other thing... I'm sort of of two minds about even spending that much time on this as a text because it feels like it played with our attention. So why should we reward it with further attention? But I also think so. I think there's there's several levels on which you can critique it. One is the conceit. Is it appropriate to kind of try to pull something like this over on an audience ever? Two. There's execution broadly, like whatever they were trying to say or do with fact and fiction, and it feels like somehow the subject of it has to be fact and fiction if you're going to fuck with the audience in this way. You can't just like fuck with the audience and then have it be a show about video games like that. It, it feels like it needs to have something to say about our relationship to truth and fact and fiction that is compelling and comes through. Um, and I don't think it meets that bar. Then there's its execution as a piece of fiction, like just if you're if you were writing a mystery story, if you're comparing it to Stranger Things or any piece of fiction, like do do the yarns and threads add up to anything? Weave into anything? Anyway, sorry, metaphor foul. But um, <laughs> like they they this as a mystery, this is basically like one red herring after another it seems like and they 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 kind of keep getting a new blind alley and then they chase it and then they go down another blind alley like it doesn't it doesn't have the tidiness 
it, it shares in its structure the frustrations of actual audio documentary where like nothing is ever resolved and you kind of meet a bunch of weirdos and they all have a bunch of questions and nobody gets any answers, which if you're going to make a fiction thing, like give us the fucking answers or something, you know, like give us the satisfaction we can't get from a real audio documentary where you never learn anything in life is is but an unknowable and tantalizing mystery. Like just, I don't know, make it the aliens, whatever. Sure. Well, but that may speak to, I mean, the, the, the issue with its its status as a kind of failed work of fiction uh, may speak to the underlying frustration of the project as a whole, which is that it only works in, as, a, as a narrative as a whole insofar as it uh, echoes the style of uh, documentary radio production with its uncertainties, its questions, its inability to answer the, the crimes that it, it sets out to solve or whatever. And to the extent that it fails – as as a work of fiction, it also can't work as radio documentary. Uh, I mean, all of these things just sort of collapse onto one another. They, the, it's a house of cards where the cards knock each other down. I don't know. That's a failed metaphor too. But <laughs> so is this that, show. No, that's good. That just is the metaphor. That's what they mean by house of cards. <laughs> I think that's that, you fair. Know, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I I think the most effective part of the fusillade are fail, failed metaphors. I mean. Um, <laughs> Anyway, for a failed show. Anyway, we didn't love it, but uh, we totally dug having uh, Jacob on the show. Uh, thanks so much for coming on to talk about the Polybius conspiracy. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. What do you have? Steve, I'm going to start a new category of endorsements that are probably going to be more coming from me than anyone else. But uh, this was suggested by a listener who was interacting with me on Twitter. And I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but maybe he wouldn't want it to be announced anyway. But uh, but he was thanking me for um, having having endorsed long ago, I think it was shortly after Trump's election, um, the Lesson de Ténèbres, that very gloomy and sad and beautiful piece of music by Charpentier. And, and he said that we should institute something new in the winter, that instead of the summer strut, we do the winter wallow, which is music that you just want to listen to when things are hard and cold and you're trying to get through the day. And uh, since most of the music that I listen to falls into the winter wallow category, I hereby institute the winter wallow endorsement. And uh, my winter wallow for this week is Pergolesi's Stabat Mater, which is this beautiful, beautiful 18th century uh, setting of a very, very old Catholic hymn about about Mary and the suffering of the Virgin Mary. Um, it's a gorgeous piece of music. I really wish that I had a specific performance of it to recommend because I actually have one at home that I love, but I can't find it online. So I have to just recommend the music. And of course, it matters who's playing it and who's singing it. So if in the future I can find the uh, the correct citation for my favorite recording, I will. But really, any recording of this music, I'm sure, would be absolutely gorgeous for a long winter wallow. Again, it's the Stabat Mater by Giovanni Pergolesi. What's Stabat doing there, just linguistically? I think Stabat, are you a Latin scholar, Steve? I think it means... Oh my God, absolutely not. The mother stands or let her stand. Well, the, the, the translation of the first line, Stabat Mater Dolorosa, Iuxta Crucem Lacrimosa, Dum Pendebat Filius. The grieving mother stood weeping beside the cross where her son was hanging. So I guess it's the past tense. The stood. Mo- the mother stood. Yes. Yeah, sto stare. That's stand. Right. Okay. Sorry. Thank you. Mm. Uh, Julia, what do you have? I would like to recommend that our listeners go get the immediately to iTunes or their podcatcher of choice and subscribe to Slow Burn, which is a new podcast we have released from Leon Nafak, which explores the question of what Watergate felt like while it was happening. We are, of course, 
living in a moment when our president is under investigation, but we don't know how that's going to go. We don't know exactly how to make sense of each development. Uh, there's an extraordinary cast of characters already assembled in year one of the Trump presidency. Uh, and that led Leon to think about Watergate and what uh, what that felt like in the moment, how people processed each little bit of the story before it went down. I think especially if you didn't live through it and even if you did, it's been reduced a little bit to the all the president's men story um, and deep throat and the resignation and I am not a crook and you've got you know you've sort of got the 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 set of sticking points in your mind for processing the story. But there was so much more, so much complexity, so much to interpret. And Leon and uh, his producer have done an amazing job digging through the archive. There's so much fascinating tape from this era. You can hear all the voices. uh, And it's a really, really great listen that will both teach you about history and make you think about how we understand the world today. Uh, So please go subscribe. Slow burn. It's great. I mean, Leon is amazing. I can only imagine, and the subject is incredible. So uh, I cannot wait to cannot wait to sample it. Um, all right. So there's a. Um, I spend a, like inordinate amount of time time in my automobile, which means uh, I'm accompanied by NPR quite a lot. And there's a show that comes on uh, every now and then um, called American Roots, which uh, I can be forgiven for having thought for a long time was R O O T S because it's about American root music, essentially country and western jazz, blues, uh, rhythm and blues, zydeco, uh, klezmer, on and on and on and on. Um, um, but actually, it's American roots R O U T E S. It's a little hama phonic pun, I'm sure. Anyway, I caught an episode of it that is so fucking incredible that um i have to tell you all about it and i have to ask jody rosen to listen to it and tell me um am i crazy or is this just the greatest thing i've ever heard it's called jews and blues uh and it's essentially um and i'm more or less reading from their website right now because i don't want to get it wrong but it's exploring the connection between the wail of the cantor and the slide of the blues note where jazz and western meet the klezmorium um they interview legendary R&B producer Jerry Wexler, who worked with Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and later Bob Dylan. Uh, and essentially, it explores the relationship between um, a, a, a tradition of Jew- Jewish musicianship uh, and record production and their connection to the business end of the recording industry and blues music um, as it developed in the United States. It's a two-hour version of the program, and it is fucking amazing. I mean, they, the music they play from Klezmer to Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, uh, uh, Randy Newman, Artie Shaw. I mean, it just, they really, it, the, the show in general on a week-to-week basis is great about tracing out the DNA of American music and this particular strand of it was totally gripping and totally uh, fascinating. I could have listened to it for hours, and Wexler is an incredible uh, human being, um, in addition to being an amazing record producer. And then one other very quickly is that, again, to bring up Jody Rosen, he put me onto the solo careers of both of the lead guys from Drive-By Truckers, both of whom I really admire, Patterson Hood and Jason Isbell. Uh, I wouldn't pick one over the other, but I will say the Jason Isbell song, Elephant, I don't know if either one of you knows this song. It is... It is a very painful song about a very painful subject, and I, with no irony, give people a trigger warning. It is about a friend dying of cancer, but it is one of the most exquisite and beautiful 
songs I've ever heard. I mean, I just cannot stop playing the song both on my recorder and trying to learn how to play it on my guitar. So Jason Isbell turns out is just a titanically gifted American songwriter and country artist, uh, in addition to being one of the co-heads of Drive-By Truckers. Formerly, I am told formally, my producer in my ear is telling me Jason Isbell is no longer in the Drive-By Truckers. He is formally of the Drive-By Truckers. So please check it out and let me know what you think. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. You can check out an entire roster of quite interesting and diverse shows at uh, panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll we'll see you soon. She said, Andy, you're better than your past. Winked at me and drained her glass. Cross-legged on a bar stool like nobody sits anymore. She said, Andy, you're taking me home. But I knew she planned to sleep alone I'd carry her to bed and sweep up there